Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode. Sitting here with my crew. Um, today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about potassium and why everything's going to be okay. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> All right, so the, the reason I thought of talking about this is because I was talking with a colleague and he was just railing about KX late and why us internists still, he wasn't an internist, why we still use it. And I was like, what do you mean? Because it gets rid of potassium. If your potassium is high, obviously you take a medicine that wastes it from the body, right? We get bicarb, we have all these things that just cause shifts, but how do you actually excrete it from the body? So that got me thinking and I did a little research and turns out KX Lade has almost no evidence to it. So that's shocking because that's all we've been taught and I've been doing it since residency started. I know. And it it feels strange because of how many times I've told my residents, my students, like you have to excrete it from the body and like give the KX light, right? That's why we're doing this. Things we do for no reason. Exactly. So um, basically, and this is interesting too, KX light has been around since the 50s, but I learned this, that it wasn't until 1962 that you had to actually prove that your drug worked to get it on the market. So think about like the early 1900s, you can like, you know, the snake oil salesman, you could just make a claim and sell your thing. But as of the 60s, you had to actually prove that it worked. And KX Lite was released like just around that time where they were going back and like reviewing uh, older medications. And let's just say the early evidence and the early studies would just not hold water in today's standards. They just wouldn't. It was like studies on like 30 patients and this, the stuff they looked at was just um, not robust data at all. We were just talking how good our resumes would look if uh, we were doing studies back in the 60s. Oh yeah. Oh, I invented <laughs> this uh, this uh, placebo and uh, it turns out it works. I tested seven people. Yeah. <laughs> so why you would think KX Lite is a good idea? Uh, well, for one, it's a binder. I'm using air quotes, uh, meaning that it gets into the gut. It basically will exchange some sodium in the stomach and pick up hydrogen ions, and then it gets to the colon, and it gives up the hydrogen, picks up potassium, and then you poop it out. So that's like in theory how it works, right? Um, but as I mentioned, theory and actual practice is different. And if it's going to eliminate potassium, it's also going to eliminate other things. So why you would not want to use it? If it's eliminating potassium, it's going to eliminate anything else with a positive charge. So let's say your patient was on lithium or DIG or levothyroxine, which, you know, is interact with everything you take. Yeah. Uh, you would also waste those drugs from the body. So that's not ideal. Um, the other thing is in the studies that, that looked at KXLate, it pretty much took like hours to usually days to excrete the potassium. So there were patients who had lower potassium levels, but it took like six days to get there. If you miss dialysis and you're coming in with a potassium of six, like you only have a couple of days till yeah. it kicks in, right? Plus, who's to say the body didn't naturally get rid of the potassium on its own and it was really the KX late over the course of six exactly. days? Exactly. Exactly. Have you guys ever been scared or had someone scary about bowel necrosis with KX late? Yeah. Definitely Those heard words about have come it. Up. They yeah. Come up. Yeah. So this is a uh, a safety concern with KX late. Um, I will say in all the years and all the you can imagine there's been millions of doses given probably just this year um there have only been like 50 documented cases so the number needed to harm if you will is like extraordinarily high obviously we don't report every case that happens and we don't have enough good like early data from like fda now like would collect that data up front so we don't actually know the true number 
I will say in general, my take on it is if I, you know, if I do use KX Lite, I'm not going to give it to a patient with like an SBO or ulcerative colitis or someone with like recent GI surgery or impaired motility. I'm just not going to mess with that because those are the patients that will get it. Um, the other thing is um, if you actually look at the like hyperkalemia like treatment guidelines from the AHA guidelines, they will uh, classify KX Lite as a class 2B level C recommendation. Anything lower than that is considered harmful to your patient. <laughs> That's wow. a very low So they're saying it's a low recommendation in the treatment of acute hyperkalemia per AHA. It is a low level recommendation with minimal evidence. So just consider that when, you, you know, like we want to be evidence-based. We want to give stuff that's like proven and effective. KXLate just has not been shown to be that drug. It, yeah. it, I wish it were. It'd be nice to have a wonder drug, but this is just not the one. It's not the one. Hmm. Yeah. So how can we treat potassium hyperkalemia otherwise? You guys already know the, you know, there's everyone has their mnemonic, maybe CBK, that's what I use, right? Calcium, insulin, glucose bicarb, beta agonists, like we have all that construct. Right. But what actually works to like get rid of the potassium from the body, and I, I want you guys to think about it almost like hypercalcemia, right? When you have hypercalcemia, I'm sure you guys have taken step one, step two, step four, step five, you know, <laughs> shelves. They always like to ask you, what do you give? You give normal saline. Yeah. Right. You give more normal saline, and then you give more normal saline. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then when you add to the normal saline? Lasix. Lasix, yep. right? So you have the more, basically the way to think about it, the more salt you deliver to the distal tubule, the more potassium you waste. Correct. Um, so whether that's with Lasix, because that puts more salt into the distal tubule, or it's with normal saline, because again, more salt in the distal tubule, you will hold, you know, swap it for potassium. So normal saline and loop diuretics together, uh, just like hypercalcemia, can actually make you waste potassium. Um, a couple other things that you can try uh, I've yet to do it, but I'm dying to try. You can actually use flucocortisone. So especially if your really? patient is like hypotensive or has a history of like adrenal insufficiency. I mean, think about the mechanism. It's gonna make you retain the sodium and yeah, waste the potassium, potassium, right? That yeah. makes so sense, that, yeah. That works a lot faster than KX late would. So especially in a hypotensive patient, you can try that. Um, and then the last couple of things, um, you know, this is not practical at all. It's more to just like dunk on a med student. Black licorice. Yes. <laughs> this making me to two pounds of black licorice. Exactly. If you eat yeah. that much black licorice, right, it has the glycerisic acid, which yes. stimulates that aldosterone mineralocorticoid receptor. Um, but actual real treatments you have as a replacement. So first you try to give fluids if you can. You try to give a loop diuretics if you can, right? Even if your patient's ESRD, just hit them with like a Lasix bomb, see if you can get it out of them. But the two things that actually have some evidence to it, one is Lokelma. So I'm, I'm sure you guys have started to use that more and more. Yep. Yes, definitely you know. prefer to use that now over, well, now we know over K-Axalate. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I have slowly started using more Lokelma and now that I've looked up the evidence, I will absolutely use Lokelma more. Lokelma is sodium zirconium. But um, the, the benefit is that it's quicker onset, meaning a couple hours, really, compared to like k um, right. And there really isn't any like contraindication with like bowel necrosis or any of that stuff. And then the last one that you can use is, uh, uh, I, I'm butchering the name, but Paterimer or the brand name is Veltasa. 
Um, and that allows you, um, basically what, what that does is it's a patient who's on like RAS inhibition, you can use that. So there's a couple trials, the AMBER trial that just came out, and there's a couple other with, you know, not fancy names to them. Um, basically have shown that if you add this to a patient on like an ACE or an ARB or spironolactone, they're able to stay on those drugs longer oh, cool. and without risking hyperkalemia. So they get like more kidney protection long-term. And so it's kind of a, maybe a neat trick you can try. Um, again, I've yet to see that drug. I even have heard of using Locoma to be able to keep patients on their ACE or ARB. Right. So kx was never meant to be used as like a chronic drug like that, but Locoma and, and this Veltasa you can actually use as a daily mm-hmm. medication on like your, you know, CKD patients and preserve that potassium in there. So. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I know about Locoma is it's kind of a pricey drug moving like as an outpatient. Mm-hmm. I know it can cost anywhere from like 200 to $800, so I don't know if insurance covers it or what, what insurances cover it or what, but it's definitely at least we have an option now to at least give somebody something that has evidence. Yeah, yeah. exactly. All right. Well, hopefully I blew your minds with potassium and uh, I guess don't give KX late anymore, even though I told you to do it at some point. In my life. <laughs> and we've all done it a whole bunch. So yeah. I, this one definitely blew my mind. A couple last, uh, you know, things we do for no reason. You know, it's good to question some of the things we do and the evidence behind it. And occasionally there's something that we regularly do, like, you know, give KXLate, and then learn otherwise. So, uh, Megan, do you have anything of interest for us? I do, actually. So, I want to talk about pre-albumin. So, have you guys ordered pre-albumin before, and in what context did you, did you order it? Surgery rotation circa 2013. <laughs> I feel like it's a surgery <laughs> specialty, not to pick on anyone here, but... Um, Basically, it's been used in the past to look at nutrition status. And, you know, we know malnutrition is is a huge problem in a lot of our patients. It's an independent predictor of hospital mortality, um, and it's actually underdocumented. So it is important to, you know, learn about nutrition status, but prealbumin is actually not the way to go. So just throwing out some numbers here, in 2015, um, U.S. hospitals spent an estimated about $2.6 million on prealbumin testing. Um, another name for it is actually transthyretin mm-hmm. um, because it transports thyroxine and triiodothyronine. Um, so so the, it has nothing to do with albumin, you say? It really doesn't. Um, so Fun fact, do you know why it's called prealbumin then if it has nothing to do with albumin? Actually, I don't. It's found on a gel electrophoresis. Literally right before albumin. Oh, uh, mm. smart. So, okay. yeah, it has <laughs> Great name. literally nothing to do with <laughs> yeah. albumin. Yeah. So, um, one of the, you know, pre-albumin versus albumin, it has, pre-albumin has a shorter half-life. It lasts around two and a half days. So, previous studies have looked at it being a useful tool to detect rapid changes in nutrition. Um, but the first main problem with it is that it's incredibly nonspecific. So it's affected by a lot of different factors from, you know, medication, so NSAIDs to steroids, renal function, dehydration, any liver or thyroid disease, and even acute blood loss. So basically everyone. Exactly. So basically <laughs> every single one of our inpatients. has one of those problems. Um, because most importantly, it's a negative acute phase reactant. So basically any inflammation, which as we said is universal in our hospitalized patients, decreases the level of prealbumin in the circulation. Um, so, in fact, uh, prealbumin has been found to be inversely correlated with CRP levels, which makes sense. 
So it's also not sensitive. So we said it's not specific, but it's also not sensitive for malnutrition. There have been studies, a systematic review looked at 20 studies of non-diseased malnourished patients and only found two studies in which patients had abnormally low prealbumin levels. And that was with BMIs less than 12. They even documented normal albumin in patients with BMIs down to 12.9. They've also shown that nutritional supplementation does not always correlate with increasing levels of albumin even when there's other, other evidence of increasing nutritional status. Uh, most importantly, it doesn't affect your clinical outcomes in the end. Um, so I guess the question is, what should we be doing to attra- uh, assess malnutrition since we said it is an important factor for our patients? So first and foremost, it, it's very reasonable to consult a dietitian and somebody that you're, you're worried is malnourished. They can help with both the assessment and then the plan going forward in terms of supplementation. Um, in terms of your history, you want to ask, you know, how much weight has been lost and over what mm-hmm. period of time, um, asking about their food intake, getting a really specific history in terms of what they've been eating and when. Um, a good physical can tell you a lot about nutritional status as well. So you can look for loss of muscle mass, fluid accumulation, like mass edema is also a sign of malnutrition. You can look for reduced grip strength. And then you can, you know, look at their BMI. I know there's some issues with BMI that we won't get into, but that's also another good indicator. Yeah, there's obviously some nuance to interpreting a BMI, but if it's 11, then sure, you know, exactly, you get problems. Mm-hmm. I think this also really supports, you know, history, physical, history, physical, history, physical, history, physical. It really emphasizes that yeah. for all of our diagnoses, and we use yeah. labs to support it. But we don't need a lab in this situation. Just look at the patient, talk to them. Just look if they look hectic or not. You know, they're most likely not nourished. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, this I, lab test is not going to change your approach to the yeah. patient in summary. I, I generally use 5% weight loss as a cutoff. So consider if your patient only started at 120 pounds, it doesn't take much to be kind of worried about malnutrition in those patients. And a couple other things is, you know, examine the patient. Like you can look for like super uh, um, clavicular muscle wasting. You can look for uh, temporal muscle wasting. It's usually the first mm-hmm. place you'll see it. That's not the first place you get it, but it is most obvious and visible. You can examine between their hands, look for you know some muscle loss in, in, the, in, in between the fingers as well. So their quad muscles, you know, you can see muscle atrophy. So there's a lot of other like, you know, if you really want to examine the patient closely, you can easily see signs of this. Uh, I think grip strength, as you mentioned, is like actually a really big predictor of like morbidity in the coming months as well. And in general, like when you see your patient and you try to like auscultate their lungs and like, you know, you have to like throw them a life raft to like help sit them up just so you can listen. Yeah. Like they're obviously going to be a little more malnourished. There's not much muscle mass there. They're having so much trouble. And the last thing in terms of uh, did you come across like other blood tests, like maybe BUN and creatinine, you know, if those are both low, you're thinking about negative nitrogen balance. You know, that to me is a little more, again, look at what the patient looks like. But I think tests like that are more useful than checking this like extra, what seems like pretty nonsensical lab. Yeah, agreed. I think you, you mentioned that the half-life is two days and I think that was initially like why they thought it was such a good test because it's like one of the earliest signs of malnutrition, but exactly. it, it's just not mm-hmm. been shown to be the case. So. And that's why they suggested we use it in the hospital initially, but mm-hmm. as we've seen, it didn't quite play out. Even just knowing that it's a negative acute phase reactant, there's just so much things that can affect it. 
Mm. Exactly. So in my mind, like I don't even know how we would have made that connection yeah. if we started using it. Well, in the initial studies, they actually looked at it in um, kids with quashiorcor, right? But didn't account for the fact that most of these kids either have a, a parasitic infection or some sort of infection, mm. which also decreases right. the so, prealbumin. So again, so. we talked about inclusion criteria. Is your patient a child with quashiorcor? Yes. Yeah. If yeah. not, do not order those <laughs> tests. And if your patient has quashiorcor, like you know they're malnourished already just by looking right. at them. Exactly. So that's like, yes. <laughs> what is this A lot number? of this doesn't make sense. Yeah, yep. things we do for no reason. Yep. All right, so basically what you're telling me is don't order a prealbumin level, and I am all for that. Mike, is there something else that we're doing out there that we probably should not be doing? Yes, let's talk about poop. So constipation, the hospitalist feared complication of anything. Um, I used to, as an intern, when I first walked in the room, when the patient told me they were constipated, I used to be like, have some, have some coal ice. That, that should help. <laughs> and now I look back at it, shouldn't have done that. Mm-hmm. It's a thing we do for no reason. Mm. So let's talk about coal ice and constipation. So I love this topic because I love fixing constipation because mm-hmm. it's gratifying. You and so, Yen both. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, we do have a resident that likes to give Metamucil shots to our other residents to promote bowel health. So I'm not that far. I prefer this to pop in a colace. But let's get into it. So, colace. It's roughly estimated that we spend in North America alone about $100 million just on docusate slash colace products. I mean, it's in all of our order sets, right? You admit a patient, you click the button. And here I thought pre-albumin was a problem. (laughs) $100 million. So there's an average of 10 doses of docusate per admission across 17,000 admissions. That's what they've kind of done in their studies. But we don't really have evidence that kind of supports that colase works. So what they, one of the earliest studies that we did, I believe it was in the 60s, they looked at 35 elderly patients with chronic atonic constipation, and they gave them daily docusate. And what they found is that they just had a decreased need for enemas, but it didn't change their overall bowel habit or a change in their bowel flow or their constipation. This is the less need for enemas. And then study after study after study that they did, they also saw this. Like most of them are saying like some of them had increase in bowel movements, but no change in overall yeah. like frequency, no difference in frequency of quality of bowel movements. That was in 1976. 1978 showed an increase in bowel frequency, but no change in quality. Of my, my favorite from this article is that there was the, one of the earliest studies, 19 patients had to be excluded because of placebo response. Exactly, exactly. Like, so basically placebo worked just as well and they were removed from the study. And they took it away from the study. Or, or the other one from 98, this is industry sponsored. Yes. It's like, you know, <laughs> big constipation wants you to think. Exactly, <laughs> look out for big constipation pharmacy, you know. So there's this tons of studies of studies of why it doesn't work. And then what we were kind of thinking why it works and kind of our hypothesis is that it kind of helps retention of water in the actual colon, and this should kind of help with softening the stool and helping it pass. But it turns out that's not really the case. We don't really know the actual mechanism that colase actually works by. It's all hypothesized, uh, but it also doesn't, we don't have any data that supports that shows it actually works. So what should we do instead? So Miralax, 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 Miralax. That's what they say their first go-to is, mm-hmm. is start with your polyethylene glycol. You can use lactulose as well, senicides, for treatment for prophylaxis instead of using docusate. Um, you know, I don't know about you, but I've always heard the smush and push 
uh, <laughs> like when treating constipation, you want to smush it and you want to push it out, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can't say I've heard that the, before. The colase and the laxative, maybe I made it up. I don't think so. But <laughs> the 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 colase and like a like a Miralax in my mind worked. Like and, and it, it, this made sense. But now I've kind of transitioned away from colase and just use Miralax, yeah. and it's, it's done wonders. And if you're ever in a bind or in trouble, throw in some mag citrate, and it's guaranteed to work. Yeah. So overall, I mean, I think this is kind of eye-opening on things that we do for no reason just because somebody told us or maybe in our mind it maybe makes sense pathophysiologically, but there's so much it's, data it, that shows it doesn't work. It's also once something kind of gets into the dogma, it's very hard to question our old habits. Exactly. And so this is kind of yeah. like early practice, got passed down through generations, and then we kind of still use it. And um, like I said, it's literally in our admission order set. Right. So it's very exactly. easy to just click exactly. it without thinking about it. Um, I will say this also, to me, drives home the point of like, in terms of evidence-based medicine, the weakest evidence is based on like pathophys and mechanism of action. Exactly. And the strongest evidence is randomized control trial. That's like our, you know, exactly. our gold standard. Um, so I, I will also just add to it. I've done this in inpatient as well. Nurses don't like me for it. But if Miralax didn't work, more Miralax. I mean, what's in the bowel prep is just a lot of Miralax. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So you can order five or six packets. You don't have to have them finish it. But if you order like a couple of packets of Miralax, mix it with some Gatorade to make it a little more palatable, mm-hmm. and just tell the patient drink until you have a bowel movement. You don't have to like drink the whole thing, but that will you know kind of help things going getting going. And things I kind of like to do too experimenting with mag citrate because I love mag, mag citrate is I always have my patient drink half the bottle first mm-hmm. because you never know how they're going to respond. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I've had a patient syncopize. Right. From... Oh no, don't get me wrong. <laughs> I've had a patient have a lot of Miralax and then next thing I know someone's asking me to order a C. diff test. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, you can overdo it for sure. Yeah. So, But then you just tell your patient I treated your constipation. Exactly. <laughs> right. Problem. What you're saying is problem solved. Exactly. Yes. So... You know, and I think it's important to avoid the problem in the first place. So 100%. you mentioned the prophylaxis, you know, putting on that Miralax as soon as they get in the hospital, because pretty much everybody in the hospital is constipated. We see it every day. You're laying yeah. in bed, you're not moving, you're going to get constipated. Mm-hmm. So yep. make sure you're getting your prophylaxis in there. Yeah. And early ambulation as well. Yeah. For also, sure. you know, maybe eat some vegetables and fruit. Yeah. Yeah. But. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Anyway. Yeah. We, we can try. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys.